HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week's Meet and 3 is all about food branding and identity in 2020. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Everybody has some Goya product in their pantry. So obviously the biggest kind of loss from all of this is the students really working with a brand that they're very comfortable with, that they're very familiar with. I'll be honest, I was completely floored. I was very surprised that a company, especially in the current climate, would backtrack out of a commitment to address issues of racism. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Bob Valgenti, standing in for Cora Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, whose most recent issue is entirely devoted to COVID dispatches. In it, authors from around the world offer short, intimate portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For this podcast series, hosts from the journal's editorial collective are joined by some of the featured authors to share their stories, and to hear how things have progressed since their original submissions in March and April of 2020. My guest this week is Amanda Bloom, whose essay, I Miss the Grocery Store the Most, appears in the latest issue of Gastronomica. Amanda is a professional tech strategist and hobbyist, potter, and homesteader in Portland, Oregon, She is the author of aggravatingly long recipes full of arcane ingredients no one can find. Her work has appeared in Exo Jane, Good Housekeeping, Life Hacker, and in a file on her desktop called Taxes underscore 2017. That is, in fact, not her taxes for any year. Amanda, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Your voice is so calm. I also want to slow down and enunciate very, very clearly. Well, that's good. We'll have plenty of time 
to do that. <laughs> so let's, you know, I think from your from your biography, uh, we'll get a sense of both uh, the humor and also the insight that you've provided in your essay for Gastronomica. So let's start with life before COVID-19. Can you tell our listeners something about yourself, your day-to-day, and how your interactions uh, with food and the food system uh, transpired before the pandemic? I am an entertainer. I love having friends over for dinners. I throw an absurd Passover Seder for 40 people in my front yard under a tent. Um, I social interaction through food was a big piece of who I am. Um, you know, having people over in small groups, big groups, I have a very prolific vegetable garden. I'm one of those absurd people who throws stuff in cans and have like an entire wall of pickles that no one will ever get through eating. Um, and what's happened now is obviously it's, it's like a guillotine that cut off that, that uh, arm of your life, right? So, uh, you know, it we're what six months in now, but now we're we occasionally do, you know, a brunch on my front lawn, and we will sit ten feet apart, um, or you know, we'll try to find a shady spot in the garden, and again, sit ten feet apart. But it's not like I can really cook for anyone; they can't come into my home. Um, I miss all of that very, very much. I think there there are legions of like-minded individuals who have felt the same thing and, and perhaps to some degree didn't even realize how important a role that played to them until it was taken away. Now, in your story, you also uh, talk about uh, the fact that you have an immune disorder and how that has really shaped your experiences during this time of pandemic. Um, did that immune disorder uh, play much of a role in your, uh, let's call it your food life prior to the pandemic? And if so, how? No, totally not at all. Um, I have something called pemphigus vulgaris, which is an autoimmune disorder that I very luckily have had in remission for about 30 years, um, but is an immune disorder. And so I think when, particularly at the beginning, when we just didn't know, like nobody knew what was, you know, uh, what this was and how it affected people. I mean, we were disinfecting cardboard boxes at that point. Um, so it really never played a role before. And now it plays a horribly unfortunate role um, because I do feel this responsibility to keep myself safe because it no longer affects only me. It affects healthcare workers who would have to take care of me, the people for whom I provide jobs, and most importantly, my dog, who no one is taking if I expire for any reason. No, I think that among the other things that get exposed with a pandemic like this is we see in greater relief the webs of connections and how we're all interlinked and the kinds of dependencies that we have that we either uh, took for granted uh, or that we just had never realized uh, were so deep. Um, so perhaps with that setup, um, we can take a step uh, towards your essay, and perhaps now would be a good time for you to share that with the audience. So do you mind reading that for us? I mean, they did ask me ahead of time, so it would seem <laughs> silly to say no at this point. Um, so it's called, I Miss the Grocery Store the Most. I miss the manager at Safeway the most. 
statuesque trans woman who treats me like a confidant whenever I'm in, hugging me, giving me hairstyling tips. I miss the head of the seafood department at Fred Meyer the most. I don't think we ever introduced ourselves, but she treats me like a daughter, coming from around the corner to tell me what to buy this week, telling me about her husband or what she got the grandkids for Christmas. We're just two short, fat women with 25 years between us. I miss the butcher at New Seasons the most. He is clearly married. I ring-spotted him, but he flirts with me anyways, and I suspect often cheats the scale on my purchases. It's week nine of isolation for me here in Oregon, where I am trapped by the walls of my house, a statewide shelter-in-place order, and the crap immune disorder with which I was born. I've gone through the stages of grieving for what was my life and the 18 months that lay ahead. Sadness, anger, bargaining, and I have arrived at what I like to call acceptance adjacency. <laughs> I will accept with some grace that I cannot touch my healthcare employed boyfriend for the next 18 months until vaccine Valhalla or host dinner parties or run to the hardware store when I need things. I have surrendered my autonomy to Grubhub and curbside pickup. But what has become clear to me is that the absence that hits the hardest is the grocery store. Safeway, I just can't quit you. I am but one person lolling about a tiny kitchen, but I've been cooking my whole life. Pickling, preserving, freezing, cooking for neighbors, hosting brunches for 12, a Passover Seder in a tent in the front yard. This was made possible by exceptional kitchen organization and frequent trips to the store. I realize now that running into the store was what running to the spa is for others. It was a reason to break away from my work for a little bit. I would roam the aisles and consider what fruit was in season or if I should maybe bother making a batch of kreplach on a lark. I am, don't you worry, well fed. I am a creature of preparation and prepared to settle in for the duration in early February packing extra into the freezer with each grocery run. That's a privilege I don't take for granted. <laughs> when friends bemoan the long view of my home confinement, I remind them there are few people better prepared for the apocalypse. There are no MREs here. There are duck riettes in my freezer and my pickled nasturtiums and homemade fermented mustard to pair them with. But every few weeks, fresh fruit becomes a want, or it'll be time to get more meat or toothpaste. On my block, neighbors have designated themselves shoppers and they stand in line with lists for myself and the sharp-tongued senior at the end of the block. At some point, I hire my friend Che, an enthusiastic optimist vegetarian who spends three hours skipping through Fred Meyer in no particular order despite my list with pictures organized by section of supermarket. I tried Instacart twice. Um, what becomes clear is that while these are delightful people with every good intention, everyone except me is a 
truly terrible grocery shopper. I just never really considered how I shop, that it's worth going into Safeway just for the bags of grapefruit with their perfectly ripe ruby insides and the thin skins, vastly different from the loose ones at every other store, all pith and underripe pulp. Um, this Asian market that has the particularly thick wonton skins and the soybean sprouts I like, where I'll inevitably buy packaged noodles simply because of the cartoon on the packaging. There's a small carniciera in Wilsonville with carnitas to die for, and the panela and salty sour cream I love, an island of Latinx authenticity in a sea of particularly white suburbia. The way people shop for clothes or store or shoes or homewares like that, but make it edible. Um, grocery shopping isn't about fulfillment the way Instacart and Amazon treat it. A race to complete so that they can pay their workers the bare minimum <laughs> completed by kind-hearted folks who think a boneless pork loin is an acceptable substitution for a pork shoulder. Grocery shopping is ritualistic. It's religious. I believe in the cheese suggestions of the monger at Fred Meyer. I praise the butcher who puts whole chickens on sale every Tuesday. I sing glory, ha glory hallelujah when the fishmonger understands I'd like two pieces of facing matching salmon so I can make gravlocks. It's a weirdly complicated ask, and it took years to figure out how to explain it. Am I supposed to put that in the preferences on Instacart and cross my fingers? I'm religious. I'm not dogmatic. None of the delivery services shop at Asian markets or the Mercado or the Russian grocer. These stores don't exist in virtual land. I write, ask the butcher for a lamb shank bone for Passover on the list for my friend who in this new economy grocery shops professionally. She texts me a picture of Osobuco insisting this is what they gave her. So I call and I say, look, I'm a horrible, terrible person but can you please just go back and just say Passover again and again? She texts back a minute later that the head butcher heard, understood, the shank bone is secured. The grocery bills are astronomical, not because of fees and tips and surcharges for my food being dropped at my door, but because in this new world, there's no bargain shopping. Like I write that I'd like chicken thighs, but really, what's on sale would heavily influence my cooking. I simply choose the largest dish soap in any scent for the least money. And if the avocados don't look great any particular week, I just don't buy any. I haven't figured out how to put that into my virtual basket. I think about this every time I reach for my keys to go to the store, only to remember what the outside really means. I am haunted. By Karen and Shirley and Hot Butcher Dude, he doesn't wear a name tag. He's too cool for labels. I wonder about their health. Are they okay? Shirley's husband has emphysema, I remember. Do they know that I'm thinking about them? That I haven't abandoned them on purpose? Do they wonder where certain customers have gone? Do they have time to think about that in the chaos? Will it be weird if I hug them and cry when I see them again in a year, maybe two? I've thought about sending cards. I miss you, 
and I'm thinking of you often. I never really thanked you enough for understanding the thing about the salmon. I hope your whole family is okay. And please, please stay safe. I'm coming back someday. I promise. Thank you for sharing your dispatch with us. We are going to yeah. take a short break. Then we'll return to our interview with Amanda Bloom. You are listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. I'm Bob Valgenti, standing in for Cora Lee. My guest is Amanda Bloom, who shared her essay, I Miss the Grocery Store the Most, just before the break. What struck me most about your essay is its voice. I dare say, of the nearly 200 submissions that I read for this issue, yours is one of my favorites and stood out precisely because of the quality of its writing and the clarity of its voice, which also carried through in your reading of it. it Thank is you direct- so much. Oh, Could we welcome. go back 20 years and have you write a recommendation letter for me for college? <laughs> sure, we could do that. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, as someone who has uh, taught writing in various forms for a long time, uh, your essay is direct and yet it's complex it's humorous, and yet it's also deadly serious. So when you sat down to write this, did you have a specific audience in mind that you wanted to reach with that voice? Um, I did not, actually. I tend to write um, musings is the best and most accurate word that could be found. Um, It's, you know, I, I tend to notice things that most people just would complain about loudly on Twitter. And since I now avoid Twitter, um, I need an outlet for them. And they become dispatches like this. Um, it's it, it's a thing that at the beginning, I didn't see very many people talking about. Because on one hand, I really appreciate the curbside pickup economy that exists right now. Um, but on the flip side, it is changing the way that we eat. And I've appreciated hearing dispatches from, let's face it, far more serious, important people than myself in these previous podcasts. But I do think that this is affecting how people in neighborhoods, people in food deserts, uh, people, the people, um, how they eat. I have very recently been, you know, solicited from (laughs) very... um, we'll say upper middle class 
white ladies who want to know how to start canning and if what size freezer would hold half a cow. <laughs> and um, I have enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I think we, we all saw that at the beginning of the pandemic when there were shelter in place orders, there was there were mad dashes for all sorts of ingredients. People were Googling how to make yeast starters and how to bake bread and how to do this thing and that thing. And there was this, you know, in one sense, you maybe say, okay, people are catching on that, that a kind of basic awareness of where your food comes from and how to make certain things is in and of itself, perhaps a kind of good. But in that revelation also came all of the insights into the weaknesses of our, of our food system. So I'm wondering, you know, someone who works uh, in, in tech, do you see the, you know, and we could talk a little bit about all the the benefits and all the problems that come with curbside pickup and, you know, uh, shopping online and things like that. But do you think that there is a technical solution to this problem? Could we do the online shopping better, uh, given what many of us perhaps know who are obsessed with shopping uh, in a grocery store? Or is there is this a deeper problem? Is this so systemic and so kind of baked into our economy and our history that uh, it seems almost intractable. Well, Bob, as my therapist would say, both of these truths can exist at the same time <laughs> in space. I think it is, we have deeply systemic problems. Um, we have, you know, we have inequity, we have food deserts. I mean, the inequity alone is worth talking about. But um, yes, I am somebody obsessed with solutions. So on one hand, I certainly don't see any of the men in Silicon Valley fixing this with our current solutions. Grubhub, Postmates, Uber, these are all terrible. None of them are doing it. Um, could we get better? Sure. Um, you know, I I think, you know, the other day I had a, I had a interesting conversation, particularly since we're doing this now with a friend who just feels terrible for me unnecessarily. So, and was like, could we figure out a way where you get an hour in a grocery store of your choosing just for you? And I was like, that is sweet and would be frankly terrible and terrifying because I'm going to cartwheel naked through the aisles instead of <laughs> shopping. Um, but it's, she was like, what if we set up one of those bots that like videos, you know, it travels down the aisle and just shows you a video, a live video feed of what you're looking at. And then you tell it what to select. And I will just follow the video, you know, the bot and bag everything. I was like, that sounds like a very expensive solution, but I'm down. I'm into mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, one of my issues is I haven't been in an Asian grocery store in six months and desperately want to. I want to support them. And also I want Shiso. And I've tried to figure out how to explain to friends who are willing to go, okay, it's in this bay. You're not going to be able to read the, you know, the card, but like, this is what it looks, you know what, just FaceTime me. It's fine. So I think you're probably going to see a lot of white people traveling through, um, you know, ethnic specialty stores <laughs> with phones. With the video guide. On, with video. Is this it? Is, is this it? Is this it? Yeah. So, um, which, you know, that, that kind of what then becomes a sort of, you know, vicarious nature of shopping, uh, which might be a way of describing lots of experiences, uh, that we have in our contemporary world, which are kind of broken up by layers and layers. Um, you know, I, I, 
you know, had great sympathy for your longing for the supermarket uh, in your essay, I think partly because I can't imagine someone shopping for me. And, you know, as a musician, I would compare it the way that you shop and the way that I shop and the way that, that many perhaps shop as a kind of improvisation that you're in that space and you have a kind of grammar of cooking and shopping that you've developed over the years. And it's, it's difficult to transfer and explain that to someone else. And it seems that one of the effects of this pandemic has been to now not only take those experiences out of the hands of many, um, but also to uh, minimize the opportunities where those might take place in this virtual realm. So the, the small markets, the mom and pops, the ethnic markets, those aren't uh, available to those who like to do this kind of virtual shopping, or at least not, not present. Well, and I want to help those companies. I mm-hmm. want to help a bodega get online in a manageable way. And instead, what you see are these very, you know, the problem with Silicon Valley is everything is a scale issue. Mm-hmm. So you see these companies, they come into these tiny markets, these mom and pop businesses, trying to convince them to join, and it disenfranchises them quite a bit. But there are technical solutions to help these places get online more easily. And it's just, nobody's doing that. It's not a profit center. Hmm. It just can't be, as you said, it can't be scaled up in that way. Um, Not in a way that doesn't treat people terribly mm -hmm. is what we've generally found. And and of course, the the other side of that is um, what gets lost is not just the ability to shop in those places uh, or the kind of access to the size of the market that uh, you would desire. But I think what's central to your essay are also the personal connections, uh, which is such a part of what makes the essay come alive are, are these individuals that we might even say characters that you introduce that are part of your shopping experience and shopping history. So I wanted to ask, have you had an opportunity to contact or follow up with any of those individuals who you met, mentioned in the essay? I haven't. And I, as this day approached, I thought about it, like maybe I should send them the article. Would they know it's about <laughs> them? I mean, hot butcher guy, he's, he's going to know, but everybody <laughs> else, I, yeah, it, I, 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 are they working? I mean, in, in the case of both of these women I'm talking about, you know, they're both in vulnerable communities are, I, I don't know. Um, you know, and also to be frank, those are not their names because, mm-hmm. and I'm ashamed to say, I don't actually know their names. We've never introduced ourselves. And these are not markets where people wear name tags. Um, we just know each other by face. Um, I, I know details about their lives, but I don't know their names. Why do you think that is? I don't think that's that's uncommon that there's a sort that oftentimes there's a, a kind of level of familiarity or even intimacy that comes framed within we might say a kind of structure uh, in this case one of one of shopping so it kind of has once again both of those truths coexisting at the same time. Uh, what is that? I take the- full responsibility. It is it is it is my fault that I <laughs> that I think we no, I'm not even joking. It's actually really terrible that I think we minimize people in specific roles to the point that they are somewhat nameless. And the thing that really elucidates that for me is um, I before the pandemic, once a week would go for a Korean barbecue <clears throat> with two of my male best friends. I call them my emotional support animals. And we would go to a very specific restaurant where we would always stay in one section because we adored a waiter there, just a young soccer playing 
waiter on the side kid from, uh, you know, from Asia who we just, we adored and we did ask his name and he told us his name was T and we accepted that because he said, my name is actually too hard to pronounce. And I, as the pandemic started and they closed down restaurants, I did try very, very hard to get a hold of him because we frankly wanted to give him some money, Hmm. um, you know, and I realized how sad I'm calling this restaurant to say, I'd like to speak to this or I'd like you to convey a message to this person to whom I did not give the dignity of ever saying, hey, I'll get your name right. What's your real name? You don't have to you don't have to make me comfortable. Do you think that this is a, you know, a symptom in a way of the food system, but also we might say large systems in general uh, that tend to tend to depersonalize? even though, and food is a great example of something that we put into us and it perpetuates us as beings. And so um, we entrust these individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about the tremendous inequity between, you know, that we're starting to get now, right. Mm -hmm. About people who work in restaurants, the lack of protections that they have, the lack, and, but we're now considering them frontline workers. If we give them names, if we allow them the dignity of their names, we have to start thinking about them like people. Mm -hmm. And that is frankly uncomfortable for us. So is there, you know, maybe in retrospect, looking at back at the essay, uh, one of the things we've been asking uh, those who have been on the podcast is would they, do anything different or change anything that they wrote now looking back to, um, you know, now almost six months to the time when you wrote this? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I was weirdly prepared before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I remember going through Target in January shopping for antibacterial stuff and nobody even batted an eyelid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, I, yes, obviously I wish I had taken more time with, every single person that that I interacted with, because generally speaking, they were all overly kind to me. Um, and I think that was part, I, I hope that was part of an exchange where they felt kindness for me and, and delivered it back. And it wasn't just customer service, although that would be fine too. Um, I would say that's the big piece mm-hmm. is, is, you know, stop using the checkout machines, go through an actual person, keep those jobs, you know, be mindful of complimenting workers to their bosses because that kind of stuff counts and be willing to pay when you can for these goods because ultimately it pays, you know, the workers. And I I think there's a good deal as well at this point um, that that we're starting, that perhaps we're starting to realize is not just connected to the pandemic. Uh, that that these issues will be there and remain even once we find a solution, uh, whether it's a short term or a long term solution to the things that we're uh, we're we're grappling with. So maybe by way of a of a final question, I want to ask uh, about your own situation um, and your particular medical situation has kept you within your house. And as you called it, uh, I think you you called it vaccine Valhalla would be the day when uh, perhaps you can emerge again, Um, (laughs) emerge again from your house. And, and, you know, but do you think Phoenix, um, would you you put yourself um, perhaps, you know, because we're talking about these issues of equity and perhaps even issues of justice, um, do you think individuals in your situation have been somewhat forgotten 
as the country tries to, however problematically, return to a state of normalcy. Um, you know, there's been so much insistence upon reopening things, but there's a large sector of the population who, for a variety of reasons, it isn't going to work until things are really put back in order. When everything shut down, my immediate neighborhood, which was already pretty lovely, my, my immediate neighbors, we became like a family. And for three months, I would say we were all in it together. And it was, it was, it felt reassuring and safe. And then the woman across the street started going back to work a couple days a week. And, you know, somebody else started going back to school and I felt abandoned. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I exist within a system of tremendous privilege. So I, you know, but I do think about I think about people who have immune disorders and can't afford to work from home, which I'm very lucky to be able to do, um, can't afford these delivery services that have to put themselves at risk. I mean, there's a reason for this equity disproportion. I do feel like people are asking people with immune disorders to kind of not worry about it so much. Um, You know, one of my clients is a school where they're genuinely contemplating putting a music teacher in a plexiglass box to protect her from the students. Um, and I think about it every day because um, it's a music teacher box. Anyways, that's not important. Um, yeah, I, I do feel that way. And I look the company, the company, the country, two years is what WHO said yesterday. Mm-hmm. They think it's a two year problem. So that's what I live with on a day-to-day basis. And I'm lucky because I get to protect myself. There are plenty of people who don't. And uh, that's all, that's going to be the next great equity issue. Yeah. And I think connected to that, you know, it seems that one of the, perhaps one of the things that we weren't prepared for, and, and perhaps your experience in the tech industry could give us some insight into this, because t- the tech industry is such a rapid-paced, quickly evolving industry. And if you say so, <laughs> <laughs> from the outside, um, right. <laughs> but, but that we've really perhaps lost the habit or even the skill of being in the long haul and, and mm. understanding that things might take a longer period of time than we'd like to. And that's only going to exacerbate things to a certain extent. See, even what you just said was too long for a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, look, humans are impatient. I don't think it's the impatience. I think it's the uncertainty that that's Mm. what it is for me. I mean, we are all living, we are all grieving collectively and living kind of a shared anxiety. And one of the most fascinating things for me was, you know, when I started this pandemic, the boyfriend, uh, he was an, you know, an essential worker. And I realized that for a, a portion, he's just no longer my boyfriend. He is still an essential worker. He's also not dead. That that may have been <laughs> cloudy there. Um, for a portion of the country, things kind of just went on as usual. Like their lives didn't mm-hmm. change all that much. There were still drive-throughs. And, and you know, um, so you have that at one end. And then you have people like myself at the other with these wildly differing risk profiles. And that's the most fascinating thing about where where we go next is is how do we remedy those two things? Yeah, it is it is one among the unfortunately many inequalities that we 
that we face and that we'll likely face as we move forward. This has been an absolute pleasure. I want to thank you. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Amanda. Well, thank you. I appreciate that as well. The COVID Dispatches series is produced in partnership with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. More essays like the ones shared today can be found in Issue 20.3, now available on the journal's University of California Press website. Meant to be eaten listeners can enjoy 30% off single print copies of this issue with the discount code GASTROAUG2020, all caps, all one word. Offer is valid through June 2021. Stay tuned for more COVID dispatches in upcoming weeks on this podcast, Meant to be Eaten. I'm Bob Valgenti, and on behalf of the Gastronomica Editorial Collective, thanks for listening. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.